0: It's 55,000 years ago. Tendor's family had been on the move for 10 years now. They had been part of the Kongen tribe, as had their parents and their parents before them. Tendor had been chief. Tubers and fruit had been plentiful, and game was abundant. Life had been good for Tendor and his family. Then the time of the troubles had started. So far began stirring up the trouble. He said that Tendor could no longer find sufficient game to feed the tribe that once they had grown fat on the meat of water buffalo and deer, but now they were lucky to catch the occasional slow-moving couscous, hardly bigger than a man's forearm. So far, said that the tribe rarely ate meat anymore because Tendor had grown old and lazy and could no longer hunt to find meat for the tribe. Tendor tried to tell the tribe the truth. In fact, the deer and water buffalo had left the island and no longer provided for the tribe as they once had, that he, Tendor, was the best hunter in the tribe. Without him, there would be no meat at all. Tendor was almost right. Under Tendor's leadership, the tribe's population had grown to the point where their territory on the island of Timor had overhunted the game. Most of the large game had moved on to territory that was controlled by other tribes who were not so populous. Sofar was a crooked speaker. He was a bad man who said things that were not true. He had told the tribe that all of their misfortunes were Tendor's fault. Eventually, Sofar's bad speaking turned the tribe against Tendor and he was kicked out as chief and replaced by Sofar. Over the next several months, Tendor found himself ridiculed as a failure, first by Sofar, then by the rest of the tribe. This was insufferable. He had been the big man. He was the one who made the tribe so successful. Now he was the object of everyone's scorn and ridicule? He wouldn't take this. He and his three loyal brothers, their wives and children, left the tribe. The problem was that they couldn't move into the neighboring tribe's territory or they would be killed. They tried to live on the fringes of his tribe's territory, yet over time two of his brothers had been killed by the tribe when they were foraging for food. Their wives and children were kidnapped and had been given to Sofar and his allies. Tendor had no choice. He and his remaining brother cut down two palm trees and strapped the trunks together with ropes made of woven palm bark. They made makeshift paddles, got enough water for the journey, put their wives and three children on the raft, and set out for the island of Rote, southwest of their island of Timor. The journey was much harder than they thought. Once they got to sea, the current took them off course. Then a storm came. All night long, the wind howled and the rain poured down. When the sun came up in the morning, they had been blown out to sea. They could see no land at all. They didn't even know what direction to paddle. They were devastated. There was nothing to eat, very little to drink, and nowhere to go. When they finally washed up onto a beach, almost three weeks later, their children were all dead. Tendor, his brother, and their wives were emaciated and could hardly walk. Fortunately, there were abundant coconuts on the beach, which gave them life-giving coconut milk and food. Eventually, they would regain their strength and have more children. Their children would in turn have children and so on, until Tendor's family's descendants eventually populated most of the continent of Australia.
1: Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, Episode 2, Life in the Paleolithic Club. Tinder's fictional story is pieced together from what anthropologists surmise about how the first Aborigines made it to Australia. Last episode, we questioned how common intergroup violence was at the beginning of Homo sapiens' journey. Now we've reached the Paleolithic period, the period popularly known as the Stone Age. Although hominins have been using tools for over two million years, It's the Paleolithic period that we'll cover in this episode, which covers the period essentially from our y Adam and mitochondrial Eve until 10,000 years ago. That's a lot of territory and could easily be the subject of a podcast of its own. We're looking to find the arrow of history, the direction that human history is pointing us towards. In doing so, we must look to the broad trends in human history. So though we're covering the entire Paleolithic in one podcast. It's good to remember that the time period covered in this podcast encompasses 95% of all Homo sapien history. Once Homo sapiens took hold in Africa, they appear to have thrived there. Then, just under 200,000 years ago, there's evidence that Homo sapien populations were doing very well and migrated out of Africa and into the Levant. Homo sapien fossils dating roughly to this time have been found in Israel and Greece. Homo sapien populations seem to have been slowly replaced in this area by Neanderthals. Neanderthals are commonly described as having more robust bones, a wider pelvis, and shorter limbs. It's thought that this greater mass-to-skin surface ratio made them better adapted to cold climates. Then there's a period of about 100,000 years that no Homo sapien fossils have been found outside of Africa following this Ice Age. At this point, there seems to have been a period of retrenchment. Geneticists estimate that at one point following the advent of this Ice Age, the Homo sapien gene pool fell to somewhere around 1,000 people, and I've seen estimates as low as 100 people. There's some speculation that this occurred around 75,000 years ago when a supervolcano named Toba erupted in Sumatra. It's thought that this might have caused a climate crisis that put enough stress on the human population to lead to this genetic bottleneck. Once the climate crisis was over, this small group of Homo sapien hunter gatherers not only began to recover, but they began to thrive. They repopulated the area that had been lost in Africa then, beginning about 70,000 years ago. There was a second migration out of Africa. This one initially spread along the coastal route to India and Asia. In a relatively short period of time, they would spread to Asia proper and to Oceania. There's some evidence now that they reached Australia as early as 65,000 years ago. Perhaps around 40,000 years ago, our ancestors migrated to Europe. There's evidence of ever-increasing numbers of Homo sapiens in Europe following that date. It was shortly after the arrival of Homo sapiens that the Neanderthals went extinct in Europe. Some anthropologists argue that the Neanderthals died because we were more successful in filling and exploiting the ecological niches and therefore there was nothing left for the Neanderthals to eat. This, of course, is the argument you make when you desperately want to believe that hunter-gatherers were gentle, peaceful souls and need to argue that they would not violently kill an entire closely related human species. Sadly, though, the means of their demise seems obvious as they disappeared at just the time Homo sapiens arrived on the scene. Geneticists have recently found that somewhere around 2% of the genome of humans with European ancestry comes from Neanderthals. Later, Homo sapien populations, when overrunning neighboring populations, will kill men and enslave women and children. A small amount of the genome of the devastated population will then find its way into the conquering population from unions with the enslaved women. The fact that a small portion of the European genome is Neanderthal argues that this was our practice even 40,000 years ago, though of course we'll never know for sure. Then the last ice age peaked somewhere around 21 or 22,000 years ago. It was at this time that the ancestors of today's Native American populations crossed over the land bridge that appeared between Siberia and Alaska when the ocean levels dropped due to the amount of water that had been trapped in glaciers. Like human occupation elsewhere, human migration occurred surprisingly quickly. There's some evidence of human habitation in South America 15,000 years ago. To me, this is exemplified by the spread of populations across Polynesia. The first evidence of human habitation in Polynesia is about 1000 BC. It was then that Tonga and Samoa were first inhabited. The Polynesian islands can be hundreds of miles apart. In the case of islands like Hawaii, well over a thousand miles. Yet I remember coming across a passage in which Captain James Cook wrote in his journal during one of his explorations of the Pacific around 1770 that he passed an uninhabited island. This seems noteworthy in that he felt compelled to note that the island was uninhabited. This would not have been worthy of recording if most or even a large percentage of the islands were uninhabited. This means that within the relatively short period of under 3,000 years, Polynesian natives got into dugout canoes and paddled into unknown and uncharted waters looking for a new island to live on and populated most of the islands in the Pacific. Humans were successful enough to inhabit and maintain themselves in habitats 200,000 years ago and came close to dying out at one point, perhaps 75,000 years ago. Yet by at least 40,000 years ago, they expanded very quickly and came to inhabit virtually every habitat on the planet. What was the difference? Perhaps the greatest advantage that y Adam and mitochondrial Eve had was their lack of fur. Homo sapiens have as many hairs on our body as the great apes do. Our hair is just much thinner and shorter than theirs is. This allows us to sweat and allows the evaporating sweat to dry and cool our skin directly. Humans, primates, and horses are the only animals that sweat to any significant degree. Being essentially the only, quote, naked ape, we are able to disperse excess body heat far more efficiently than other animals. This allowed our ancestors on the African savanna to run much farther than other animals without overheating. We could run antelopes and other animals to the ground where we could kill them. The period from where we placed our Adam and Eve 200,000 years ago until about 40,000 years ago is characterized by some improvement in the stone toolkit over what humans had been using for the previous million years but most of us would not think of this improvement as earth-shattering. Most of the tools were still handheld hand axes, but stone napping technology seems to have improved and smaller blades were made. Some of them were dual-sided blades that would have been more efficient for cutting. Around 50,000 to 40,000 years ago, this technology begins to be replaced by new stone cutting and flaking technology. All dates that I'm using when we talk about these things are approximate as technological changes took place at different dates in different places. Instead of cutting flakes off larger stones to sharpen one end, or perhaps two sides of it, the stone cutters learned much more subtle techniques of being able to cut off smaller, very sharp flakes off flint rocks. These smaller, sharp flakes could be further worked into smaller, sharper knives spear points, and, eventually, into arrowheads that could be hafted onto an arrow shaft. It was during this period that the bow and arrow gained general acceptance. Arrowhead finds are numerous throughout Eurasia and the Americas beginning around 20,000 years ago. Toolmaking in this latter part of the Stone Age got even more complex. Spear throwers were used, which allowed skilled hunters to throw their spears further and faster. The first fish hooks that have been found are dated to this time, as well as the first needles. Needles were a huge advancement, as they allowed humans to sew clothes together that would allow them to stay warm in the cold climates of Northern Europe, Asia, and America. Toolmakers became adept at making more complex tools. Mattocks and adzes were made to clear the ground. Bone was used extensively for tool making, including adzes for digging, spear points, and various tools for scraping, grinding, grooving, and polishing. There are almost certainly numerous wooden tools. Wood spears with fire-hardened points have been found, though wood decomposes more quickly than harder materials and doesn't leave as much of an archaeological record. It was perhaps around 15,000 years ago that hunter-gatherers first began to tame wolves and bred the aggression out of them to become the first domestic dogs. A small scattering of statuettes and a very occasional petroglyph testify to the existence of art perhaps as long ago as our Adam and Eve. Such finds are so rare in the old Stone Age, however, that it's hard to imagine that they were a common part of everyday life in the average hunter-gatherer population back then. Then suddenly, something happened, and art sprang onto the scene in a very big way somewhere around 40,000 years ago. The first of these art objects became famous as numerous figures of obese, large-breasted women. It's argued whether these women were obese or pregnant, but they have been found regularly in Southern Europe, especially France and Spain, at about the same time, and are thought to represent fertility goddesses. Far more famously, the Homo sapiens that migrated to Europe, known particularly as Cro-Magnon, began to paint in caves. Most famously, the Lascaux Caves in France have over 600 paintings, mostly of large game animals on their walls, that date to about this time. Although art seems to have been present, at least sporadically, throughout Homo sapiens' journey then, there seems to have been a major flowering of artistic expression about the time that we began to migrate out of Africa. So what was it like for the average hunter-gatherer during the period, the Paleolithic? that we're concerned about with in today's podcast. Thomas Hobbes famously described the life of people who lived before, quote, the blessings of civilization as nasty, brutish, and short. Was this the lot of our stone age ancestors? To imagine what it would have been like to live during that time. I suppose the first thing we'd have to do is to imagine what it would be like to live with lice continually in our hair. Constantly open to mosquito bites in mosquito season, and dogged by ticks and pesky fleas. Sounds pretty nasty to me. Though I can remember getting measles as a young kid. I remember getting the first painful, itchy red bumps and thinking how I couldn't stand it and how impossible it would be to live with these things for a whole week or two, though I never got used to them and they never stopped hurting. Somehow my mind seemed to turn down the volume on the measles when I broke out with them all over my body. Somehow our mind seems to be able to similarly turn down the volume on certain annoyances that we are destined to live with. This would have been the case throughout the entire Stone Age. However, much of the quality and nature of life would have depended on whether you lived in the Upper Paleolithic or Old Stone Age or the Mesolithic or the period just prior to the development of agriculture. Though we've always craved meat for the protein, getting your weekly supply of protein was much more difficult in Adam and Eve's day. It also has to be remembered that though we were predators, we were not the apex predator in the vast number of habitats, if any, that we occupied at the time. Panthers, lions, leopards, packs of hyenas, and others would have all seen us as potential lunch they would have likely staked out the prime spots by the water holes. It's doubtful that a group of early humans with some sticks and clubs would have wanted to risk running into them. When a group of hunters did find a gazelle or a wildebeest, they would have to chase it and run after it, perhaps for miles, before their prey overheated and fell to the ground exhausted. They would then have to haul it all the way back home, which could be quite a chore depending on how large the game was. Once they got it home, they would have to skin and dress the game, butcher it, and prepare it for roasting. Starting the fire itself was no piece of cake. This was a long process in itself. No one's quite sure when fire was discovered. Estimates range from about a million and a half to 200,000 years ago. At any rate, humans had probably mastered fire by the time our Adam and Eve came along. If the game was large, there was no refrigeration, so the tribe would have to consume it all fairly quickly or it would go bad. I remember reading something by Jared Diamond. I wish I could remember what book it was in so I could cite you to it. He was talking about living with a group of hunter-gatherers. I think it was in the highlands of New Guinea. The men talked about hunting. The way they spoke about it, it seemed to him that bagging big game was a consistent thing for them. Then he saw the fruits of their hunts. The hunters might be lucky to come back with a couple of squirrels and a large rat on an average hunt. Bringing a meal of large game back to the tribe was a rare exception. It turns out that they talked about it all the time, as it was the exceptional experience that merited discussion, as we might spend more time talking about our recent trip to Hawaii than a typical day at the office. These were modern Hunter gatherers skilled with bows and arrows. They would have been far better able to hunt and kill large game than ancient hunter gatherers armed with sharpened sticks and hand axes. If finding large game is that difficult for modern hunter gatherers, it must have been truly the rare exception for our Adam and Eve and their contemporaries. Most of the calories that even most modern hunter gatherers consume are plant based. That certainly must have been the case in the old Stone Age. So, Little meat, a daily struggle to get enough calories from tubers and other plants. High child mortality. Extremes of hot and cold. Never having a stable home. Always worrying about predators. No doctors. A simple infection could mean death of a child or another tribal member. Fleas, ticks, mosquitoes, and lice. Was life in the Paleolithic club truly nasty, brutish, and short? I don't know. I spent three weeks hiking in the Rockies when I was younger. I had more than my share of ticks and mosquitoes. Long hikes almost every day, sometimes up to 20 miles. Struggling up high passes, not enough food. I suppose it sounds terrible, but at the time, I thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever done. I might have a hard time articulating why now, but at the time, there was something about the daily work, the affinity for the people I was sharing the experience with, and just being outdoors in nature that resonated not only with me, but pretty much everyone I've ever spoken to who has had a similar experience. It's also probably relevant to look back on the U.S. government's attempt to, quote, civilize the native, quote, savages in the 19th century. Following the Indian Wars, the U.S. felt that it was its job to bring the fruits of civilization to these uncivilized brutes. They decided the best way to do this was to make farmers out of them. It seemed like a great idea at the time, anyway. They could have a home of their own, not worry about what food they were going to eat, school for the kids, and so on. Who wouldn't want that? The answer seemed to be just about everybody. Although a massive attempt was made to teach agriculture to Native Americans, virtually none of the tribes adopted it. Almost to a person... They seem to yearn for their hunter-gatherer life and fight against the pressure to adopt an agricultural life. Finally, there is the phenomenon of colonial settlers who had been taken hostage by Native American tribes. This is something that colonialists didn't like to talk about. The reason was, it was common for such hostages, when they were found in subsequent years, To refuse to return to their families and to insist on staying with the tribal families that had adopted them. What was it about this life that seems to have made Native Americans so ardent in refusing to give up their traditional lifestyle and captives to refuse to return to civilization? And could this be the thing that made life in the Paleolithic club not simply endurable but enjoyable? The answer may be the one thing that's perhaps the most obvious difference between social organization between hunter-gatherer and post-agricultural societies. That is, there's typically little or no social stratification in hunter-gatherer societies. It's overbroad to say that all hunter-gatherer societies are not socially stratified, but it seems overwhelmingly to be the norm. Most hunter-gatherers are egalitarian. Each person's voice counts the same as every other person's in most societies. At this point, women might be yelling into their speakers right now, you chauvinist. They were only egalitarian if you were a man. The answer to that is maybe, maybe not. It certainly was the case among North American Plains tribes, where male-female work responsibilities were divided between hunting and warring for the men while gathering, cooking, caregiving, setting up and breaking down camp, and pretty much everything else was delegated to women. Various 19th century observers of Plains tribes commented that it appeared as if the men mostly just hung around while the women did all the work. To white observers, it appeared that to be a woman in a great Plains tribe was to be sentenced to a life of endless work and drudgery. Perhaps this is true, But on the other hand, nearly all African hunter-gatherer bands are far more egalitarian, with women as or nearly as influential and powerful as men. So what was it like in the early Stone Age? It was almost certainly egalitarian. Chiefs were chosen based on merit and maintained their position as long as they kept the confidence of the tribal members. Since the early Stone Age began in Africa... It's very possible that tribes were then organized similar to more recent tribes and women had a full voice in tribal discussions. All discussions were likely made by consensus. As egalitarian troops, everyone shared equally in the abundance of the tribe and suffered equally in times of shortage. Everyone shared meat, fruit, and whatever was collected by the tribe equally, no matter who gathered it or who made the kill. This was something that is common to most hunter-gatherer bands today. It's clear that these hunter-gatherer bands would have, in general, felt a great affinity for other members of their band, worked hand-in-hand daily with their fellow tribe members, and enjoyed each other's company in their daily struggle. They were humble people, as most hunter-gatherers are today. Pride and boasting are not generally tolerated in hunter-gatherer societies. It's a big day when a hunter comes back with a large game animal that can be skinned, dressed, and feasted on for several days. This is particularly so when there's a lot of prized fat on the animal. Yet when a hunter brings back a fat animal to his tribe, he is generally likely to say something like, I'm sorry, he's so skinny. It'll be hardly worth your time skinning him. This is because humility is prized within hunter-gatherer culture and a hunter that came back bragging about his kill would not be tolerated. Who wouldn't enjoy the company of such gentle, humble, and generous companions day in and day out? As my youthful experience in the Rockies showed me, there's something exhilarating about living outside in nature. There have been whole libraries written in recent years about the advantages of the diet in the Paleolithic period. Hunter-gatherers have always strongly resisted the adoption of a sedentary lifestyle. And even captured slaves have proven time and again that they have preferred the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. Who knows? Perhaps life in the Paleolithic club wasn't so nasty, brutish, and short after all. So what can we piece together about life during the Paleolithic period? We know that prior to 75,000 years ago, there was a population of a Homo sapiens that we would recognize as modern human if they were showered, shaved, and dressed up for our inspection. This human population was at least moderately successful and migrated as far as the Levant, but probably not much farther. The population did not have the tools that later human populations did, and certainly didn't show the kind of explosive growth and migration that later Homo sapien populations would. Then, at some point, these humans went through a time of severe environmental stress— And there was a bottleneck where the whole population shrank to about a thousand souls or less. Our best guess is that this happened about seventy five thousand years ago when the supervolcano Toba erupted in Sumatra. It's thought that this eruption put so much volcanic smoke and ash into the atmosphere that it caused a six to ten year global winter and a cooling period of up to a thousand years. During this time, the population was under great stress. As we know, it's during times of great stress that the greatest jumps in evolution take place as great selective pressure is placed on populations from one generation to the next. When this happens, truly only the fittest survive to pass on their genes to the next generation. It's my speculation that this is when the great advancement in human speech took place as our species were struggling just to stay alive those who were able to speak to each other and discuss strategies for survival and plan were more likely to pass on their genes. Gradually, the world warmed from the Toba eruption, and Homo sapiens began to rebuild themselves. During this time, we began our journey from the proto-language that had been developing since the time of Adam and Eve 200,000 years ago to our current brain that is born pre-programmed with Noam Chomsky's predisposition for syntax. Clearly, the development of this syntactical processing in our brains was developing this whole time, but it was likely during this period that it received a large boost. As our small band began to spread and repopulate in Africa, perhaps the greatest revolution of all human history took place. We began to speak and communicate with thoughts, something greater and more complex than leopard there. Once people could have conversations and discuss ideas, humans could speak and even think in terms of abstract thought. Perhaps a conversation occurred somewhere around 50,000 years ago, something like, you know, these sharpened sticks we're using as spears usually just bounce off the tough wildebeest hides. You have to get so close to them for them to be effective. By that time, the wildebeest is usually spooked and runs away. It would be great to have something sharper to throw at them. Hey, yeah, you know, you're right. Those chips that we flake off when we make our hand axes are really sharp. I wonder if we could find a way to attach one of those to the end of a stick and make a really sharp spear. It was shortly after this time that the archaeological record shows that human ingenuity began to truly accelerate. The record shows that somewhere around 50,000 years ago, there started to be a large jump in the kinds of intricacy of human tools. This increase in inventiveness continued to accelerate until by 40,000 years, there had been a revolution in the number and kinds of tools that humans use. Also, as mentioned above, it was around 40,000 years ago that art exploded onto the human scene in a big way. Finally, archaeologists also tell us that Homo sapiens also began to expand out of Africa again by 60,000 years ago. This migration was well underway both to Asia and Europe by 40,000 years ago. Archaeologists refer to this as the Great Leap Forward as the jump in human abilities on almost every level was unprecedented. What was going on during this time that caused all this creativity and movement? It's of course impossible to say with certainty, but clearly there was some shift in human behavior that caused our ancestors to engage in this rush of creativity and begin the greatest migration the world has ever known. Language is certainly the prime suspect, as nothing would foster this kind of creativity more than the ability to pass out of Helen Keller's no world and enter into the world of abstract thought where we, for the first time, were able to think in sophisticated ways of things that were not currently in front of us. Then the ability to discuss these thoughts with others and incorporate their thinking into our own would truly have been revolutionary. Let's imagine for a moment what it would have been like on the ground for Homo sapiens during this time. This takes us back to the story of Tender's family that we started this episode with. This story is a fictionalized riff on what happened with the Gombe Chimp Troop Civil War that we discussed during our last episode. It's an old story and must have played out tens if not hundreds of thousands of times in human prehistory. I was once shown a chart of the history of the Lutheran Church in America. The chart I was shown was for Lutherans, but I'm sure about any denominational church that came over from the old world in colonial times would have worked as well. The chart started with one church, then soon branched into two separate Lutheran denominations. These denominations soon became four, etc., until today there are dozens of Lutheran active denominations, not counting all the ones that are defunct. This is one of the certainties of human history. You put us in a group for long enough, sooner or later we'll start disagreeing and forming splinter groups and separate into separate groups or organizations. It probably happened less when humans were struggling more just to get enough food to feed their tribe. Homo sapiens, circa 40,000 years ago, with advanced tools to easily clear the land and dig up tubers, etc., as well as advanced hunting and tracking techniques in a lush habitat, like the tropical islands of Oceania, would have been able to breed rapidly and place population pressure on their habitat in a surprisingly few generations. As different hunter-gatherer tribes staked out different territories that couldn't be encroached on without risking war, what happened when one hunter-gatherer tribe grew to the point that its territory could no longer sustain the new population level? The answer was relatively simple for Tender, and breakaway groups like his that lived on the edge of lands populated by humans. Migrate to uninhabited lands, stake out your own territory there. A more complicated problem occurred when land became overpopulated in more settled areas where there was no place to emigrate to. In these cases, the land would become overpopulated. One thing consistently happened in every new area that humans migrated to following their great leap forward. In every new habitat we migrated to after about 40,000 years ago. All of the large animals that lived there prior to human arrival went extinct within a very short period of time after humans moved in. This is a broad statement, but it's a sad legacy for our migratory history that the only megafauna left on Earth are the elephants and rhinos, etc., in Africa and some in South Asia that evolved along with humans from the old Stone Age and learned survival coping strategies along with men, as we learned to hunt. The other indication that we were overpopulating our territories is just the speed which we were migrating and populated the entire world after 40,000 years ago. If we were populating underpopulated territories that fast, we were undoubtedly placing severe stress on older, more established populations. What would happen to the breakaway groups then? that left their tribes and had no uninhabited areas to migrate to. As we've seen, they would have been killed if they tried to establish themselves in another tribe's territory. And the Gombe chimps have shown us what happens in the chimp world to breakaway bands that remain and try to encroach on the main troop's territory. Overpopulation during the late Stone Age then would have put great population pressure on existing populations. These confrontations would have led to conflicts and undoubtedly the deaths of the less fit. That is, those with bigger brains, who were better able to communicate hunt, track, ambush, and kill, would have passed on their genes. How could these gentle, humble, generous people we met in this episode have turned into the martial warriors ready to kill anyone who invaded their territory? Richard Wrangham in his book, The Goodness Paradox, argues that it's precisely the evolutionary pressure that we have been discussing in this episode that has created the difference between what he calls reactive aggression and proactive aggression. Proactive aggression is aggression that is aimed at achieving a particular goal. Perhaps I want a tool that you have, so I go up to you and I take it from you. If you try to stop me, I punch you. That's proactive aggression and has been specifically selected against in the millennia we evolved as we have been socialized not to act aggressively within our family unit or our tribe. Reactive aggression, on the other hand, is aggression in which we act aggressively against a perceived threat. It's precisely the kind of aggression, arguably, that has been bred into our genes over the millennia, and particularly over the past several tens of thousands of years, as human groups have come into contact and conflict with each other. Particularly over the past 20 to 40,000 years or so, this evolutionary pressure would be particularly intense as population pressures have increased significantly and our weapons have become more effective and have enabled us to kill each other at a distance. Consequently, we all have both the propensity for restraining our proactive aggression but are born with a predisposition for fearing outsiders and for reactive aggression. I remember during the Balkan war reading stories of incredible sacrifice and selflessness and other stories of almost unimaginable cruelty and barbarity. I remember thinking how can it be that these incredibly selfless people live right next to these terrible monsters? So I read deeper. The answer shocked me. They were the same people. A person can show incredible love and sacrifice for those he or she sees as his or her in-group, while at the same time brutalizing someone from an out-group. Here's my admission to you, then. I'm incredibly loving to those that I care about, yet can be nasty to those who I see as threatening me here's a surprise for you. The same is true for you. It's the reactive aggression instinct we all come pre-programmed with. If you can accept this, it'll be life-changing for you. You'll then be able to go through the rest of your life with a little voice asking you, why am I thinking this about that person or acting towards him or her in that way? Is it my pre-programmed reactive aggressive instincts If you do this one thing, you'll find yourself thinking and acting very differently towards those who are not in your in-group. This has been true for me. Next week, we begin our journey into the era of settled agrarian history, which of course will be the case for the remainder of human history. As we do so, we'll see this tendency of our ancestors to respond to threats with reactive aggression become the dominant theme in history. We've covered a lot of ground in this podcast, but have not had the chance to talk about art or religion yet, anywhere near the extent that they deserve. We will remedy that shortly. First, as noted, however, we need to make a stop at the next great revolution in human history, agriculture. Every week, I'll recommend a book for you. There are far too many great books on human history to read, but if you could read one a week, You'll have a great start by the time you're done with this podcast. If you can't keep that pace, don't worry. Read whatever catches your fancy. I venture none of these books will let you down. This week's read has already been mentioned. It's Richard Rangham's The Goodness Paradox. I'll see you next week.